Well, welcome uh, to the LSE. My name is Simon Glendinning and I'm the Professor of European Philosophy here in the European Institute. Um, I'm delighted to introduce our special guest tonight. Um, I've been reading his CV and it makes disturbing reading for mere mortals. For the last uh, 30 years, he's made at least 19 long-form programs and documentaries for television and won two major documentary awards. He is actually a distinguished broadcaster. Over the same time, he's written hundreds of articles for national and international media, including a weekly common column for The Observer from 1989 to 93. He's a prolific and serious journalist. Over the same time, he's written three novels, one of which, Scar Tissue, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 1993. I think that counts as at least the start of a literary oeuvre. Over the same time, he's written and edited 17 books on politics and political history and political philosophy. He is a political thinker for our time. Over the same time, he has held 12 academic posts at some of the world's top universities and of course is currently president and rector of the Central European University in Budapest. He is an internationally recognized academic and scholar. Over the same time, at least from 2006 to 2011, he has been a member of parliament in the Canadian House of Commons, deputy leader and then leader of the opposition Liberal Party of Canada. He is a working politician and statesman. So, read that CV and weep. <laughs> Perhaps his family complain that he can't hold down a job, I don't know. Well, before letting him speak, I want to read out something from a published transcript of one of his earliest TV series, one that he hosted. It was actually my first encounter with this youthful Canadian. It was a TV series entitled Modernity and Its Discontents, aired on Channel 4 in the UK in the mid-1980s. Introducing the first in the series, our guest set a tone that has marked perhaps everything for him. He said he was aiming to struggle with the question, what is going on? To think our time. Then right at the end of the series, with time running out, he allowed himself a moment of self-doubt. In his conversation, which was at that time with Emmanuel Wallerstein, Johann Golten, and Tony Giddens, who I think is with us here somewhere tonight, uh, he allowed himself this moment of doubt. Here he is. He starts at the end. A harsh critic would say we've been engaging in a kind of medieval disputation about angels dancing on the head of a pin in the specific sense that we may not have any time. That is, these discussions we have about values, about the good society, are conducted in the 59th minute of the 23rd hour of the human race, in a sense. Wallerstein says, 57th minute, <laughs> and we don't have time for anything else. That's my answer. That's your answer, he said. 
And my answer is that that debate is indispensable in order to know how to spend those three minutes, said Galton. Giddens then says, it's more than that. It's part of the shadow of modernity and its transition to post-modernity. You say, what is this post-modernity? <laughs> Giddens says, <laughs> well, I think it's the transition we've been discussing. That is, for me, it's the rolling nature of reason. It's the interlacing changes we talked about at the beginning of this debate between the various dimensions of modernity, and it's the difficulty of living in a sequential moment of time anymore. You get this careering path away from the programmed nature of what the Enlightenment vision of modernity was all about, I think. And then you, I think that's where we should end. <laughs> We've covered a tremendous lot of ground at a very, very high level of altitude. We've talked about the biggest possible words there are, modernity, history, post-modernity. But I hope this discussion has vindicated the difficult and unpopular thought that this really is the only level at which a full encounter with the difficulty of our times is adequate. Well, you have a few more than three minutes of real time, but you're still thinking our time, still engaging with it at every level. And tonight, speaking on academic freedom and the new populism, please welcome the broadcaster, the journalist, the novelist, the political philosopher, the scholar, the statesman, and now university president and rector, Michael Ignatio. Deary me, that was really something. I, I, um, uh, this theater means a lot to me. This is a very special place. As everybody knows, it's part of the, the history of LSE and part of its contribution to the debate in London. So uh, before we went on, I covered my nerves about this by thinking, is anybody going to show up at all? So I'm extremely glad to see you all here. Are there any Canadians in the house? Oh, look at that. <laughs> so uh, you know just how well my political career really went. You know that. <laughs> um, it's also very good to see a, a man I much admire, uh, Tony Giddens, in the house. Uh, he was very good to me, and I'm delighted to see him and thank him for his contribution. And. Um, my wife is in the house, so there's a bit of quality control, so this won't get completely out of hand. Um, I do want to plunge right into my, my subject. Uh, I am the rector of a university in, in Hungary. Um, it has been attacked by a government, so I'm here to talk about what you learn when you go through that experience. But I want to build it on some of the excellent political science that has been done about populism and authoritarian populism. Define the term, um, look at Hungary briefly as a case study, uh, talk a little bit about the ways in which Europe and European institutions have enabled and facilitated the passage to authoritarian populism, which is, I think, an important element of this. I hope I can say this without uh, sounding like a Brexiter. I'm very pro-European. I just want to make it clear there is a malign relationship between authoritarian populism in Eastern Europe and European institutions. But I mostly at the back end want to talk to you about 
universities and the role of universities faced with these kinds of regimes and just make the simple case that I think we need to make, which is <clears throat> universities are many things, <clears throat> but they are also counter-majoritarian institutions. And in a time of authoritarian populism, counter-majoritarian institutions are more important than ever. So I'm kind of giving you the punchline before we start. <clears throat> Let me contrast authoritarian populism and democratic populism. You can easily imagine a kind of democratic populism which rises up against uh, elite elites, uh, rises up against state capture, uh, <clears throat> rises up against corruption, in the name of the people, uh, a democratic populism that is deeply respectful of the constitutional fabric and simply wants to restore the constitutional fabric. So I don't like it when populism is used as a kind of general term of abuse. There's a democratic populism I think we could use a little bit more of. The authoritarian populism I'm talking about is something very different, which is, let me give you a little one-phrase definition, it's single-party personalist, plebiscitary, anti-pluralist rule. Let me parse that a little bit. These are regimes that end, end, uh, aim towards single-party dominance of a political system. They're personalist in that they're concentrated on a single political personality, and that's why they're particularly authoritarian. They want to put one guy or one person in office and hold that person there. They're plebiscitary in the sense that they use the democratic system to kind of extract ongoing uh, political support by framing issues in a kind of plebiscitary referendum, yes, no, up, down, down kind of political style to reinforce their rule. And they're anti-pluralist in the sense that they really don't like the counter-majoritarian institutions that are crucial to democracy, namely courts, free press, and universities. They're also anti-pluralist in another sense, is that they don't like plural populations. They want, you know, at the limit, Hungary for Hungarians. They don't like the, they're anti-multiculturalist uh, in a very explicit way. All of this definition is house and garden stuff and very dependent on some great political science by Jan Werner Muller, by Kas Muda, by Juan Linz, by Steve Levitsky and Daniel Zyblatt, the recent book called How Democracies Die, I commend to all students in the room. Um, in some cases, these authoritarian populists are in power in Turkey, in Poland, in Hungary, in Russia, in Rwanda, in Zimbabwe, in Venezuela, and also in China if you stretch it a little bit. So it's a global phenomenon, not just an Eastern European phenomenon. But in other cases, this kind of authoritarian populism is not in power, but it is controlling the political space. That is, if you go to the Nordic countries, I was in Denmark recently, it was very striking how a right-wing populist party that's anti-migration, anti-pluralist, was pulling the whole political system to the right, even though it only gets 15, 18% of the vote. So we've got authoritarian populism in power, but we've got authoritarian populism increasingly defining the political space. You can see this in Germany. AFD gets, what is it, 14% of the vote? But it's pulled the whole political system 
to, to the right. So it's either in power or dominating the political space. The other thing that's obviously interesting about this is that it doesn't correlate, these regimes don't correlate with low-income countries that are not doing well from globalization. That doesn't work because you can go to countries that are high-income, that in the Nordic countries, in which these populist parties are doing very well, even though they're not in power, or in pulling the political system to the right. One of the other things you can say about these authoritarian populist political styles is that it's kind of old reactionary politics. It's all defined by a kind of conservatism that wants to take the society back to simpler, older ways. I'm struck on the contrary that it's a new politics based on new technologies. It's, it's innovative. It's politically innovative in ways that seem to me deeply at home with um, uh, the 21st century technologies of the internet. It's kind of crowdsourced resentment uh, and channeling all the latest uh, technologies. And it's made possible by I, by, by, I think, things that we all are struggling to understand, which is what could be called the virtual disinhibition made possible by the Internet. The emergence of these virtual political spaces in which, unlike in a real political space, and I... <laughs> I got the scars to prove this, folks. If you stood up in a political meeting with real people, they heckle you. They give you a hard time. But there are rules of civility in real political space that are simply jettisoned in virtual political space. My wife said for the five and a half years I was in politics, and I'm not a particularly tender soul, she said, simply don't read the Internet feed about you. You won't be able to get out of bed contrasted with showing up for political meetings, they didn't vote for me, but I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I had an uncivil or difficult exchange with a fellow citizen, right? So the contrast in which between these virtual political worlds and real political worlds and the authoritarian populism is turbocharged by the facilitation and disinhibition of political life that the new technologies make possible. The other aspect of the new technologies that I think these uh, political styles use is what I could call algorithmic segregation. That is the ways in which our choices of what we see and look at are reinforced by the algorithms that keep feeding us what we want to hear and see. So the political, the, the technologies reinforce our segregation and apartness and reinforce the number of times we never hear a disobliging word or a critical word and enclose us in what are commonly called uh, filter bubbles. Authoritarian populism does incredibly well in a world of virtual disinhibition and algorithmic uh, segregation. And the other fact about these technologies, which I think is terribly important to understand, is that they disempower mediating in institutions. I mean, if you think about the politics that I vaguely remember from my childhood, there were things called unions. There were things called professional associations. Hell, there were things called political parties that were stable, that were run by 
political bosses. Yes, most of them were male. It was a pretty closed shop. But these institutions mediated between the citizen and the public. And now the mediation, these mediating institutions have been disempowered by the new uh, technologies. And that, it seems to me, allows authoritarian populists to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with every single voter. So suddenly you have a political system and a political space in which it's one, indivi one empowered individual after another stretching into the millions without the mediation, which produced the brokerage function of mediating institutions. The great thing about a political party is that it gets people in the room who can't stand each other and forces them to do deals that put together programs. And those programs are usually moderated, water-in-the-wine versions of what everybody would actually like, right? Those, the mediating functions of these brokerage institutions have been decisively disempowered, it seems to me, by, uh, by, by the new uh, technologies. Going with that, I think, is another phenomenon which people have noticed, which is that uh, the new technologies and this new political style have gone on direct attack against all the professional classes that used to defend the constitutional uh, machinery of our society, they, the judges, the media, the universities, the professionals, the professors. There is a whole professional class which LSE exists to train and which my university exists to train who were tied into the liberal state. That is, there's not only the constitutional state, but there are the professions that sustain it. And they have been disempowered by the new technologies and they are under fierce attack from this kind of politics. That is, we all know the Daily Mail headline, you know, the, the ways in which the judges were attacked as, you know, traitors. I mean, unthinkable 50 years ago, uh, you could be hostile to judges, but the idea that they had no legitimate function standing in the way of the popular will is a change in the political climate of this country that, as someone who loves British parliamentary democracy for all its faults, I found deeply shocking and surprising and a new social fact. But it tells you something about um, the, er the, the erosion of the political base of support of those professional elites, uh, judges, uh, journalists, professors, uh, lawyers, uh, that essentially s sustain the liberal constitutional uh, state. And the consequence for universities have been devastating. Instead of creating the professions that sustain the constitutional state, we're now simply look like a bunch of elite institutions that credential inequality. We're exposed in a way that's quite new, and this politics is coming right at the university, and I think we need to understand the, the, the dimensions of that. Because it's a politics we haven't seen for some time. It's not fascism, by the way. It's something, it's a new political form. It's democracy against constitutionalism. It's democracy against rights. We always thought democracy and rights went hand in hand. The idea that democratic majoritarianism could be hostile to 
democratic rights and to constitutional institutions is a novelty, but that's where this politics is going. There's also sovereignty against the international order, but that's another issue. Uh, when I look at what it looks like when I'm in a place like Hungary, I, I want to emphasize another feature of this politics, which is the very deliberate, and this is also new, substitution of legalism for the rule of law. Let me give you a very concrete example. The legislation that is being used to shut us down is a perfect piece of legalism. It's a relentlessly form, you know, carefully drafted piece of law that was introduced with any con without any consultation and discussion by the Hungarian government, rammed through parliament in six days with no debate with any of the stakeholders. In a normal democratic country, if you want to change the rules that govern universities, it's quite legitimate for a government to try and do that. But what you do is you consult, you talk, you exchange. That's how the constitutional order works. Here what you do in these regimes is you put a bill before a parliament that is already gerrymandered to be in your support and you ram it through without any discussion at all. And when you object and say this is a flagrant violation of the rule of law, they look at you directly in the eye and they say, but this is a piece of law. Look at it, it has subclauses, it has subtext, it has whereases, it has wherefore, it's in perfect legal form. What is your problem? Right? And you find yourself in a dialogue of the deaf. They actually know exactly what they're doing. It's legalism in place of uh, the adversarial justifications and exchanges that go with uh, enforceable rule of law. The other aspect of this about authoritarian populism is the politicization of everything. This affects universities because universities have a, as I will go on to emphasize, yes, we're political institutions, but one of our functions is to not be captured by partisan politics and to create political spaces in which differing and opposing views can talk to each other and exchange. Universities have a much more important role in creating free public space than we often acknowledge. And particularly in places where I work, a, a university is the public space to a degree that I think is not often appreciated. Um, and we struggle to make sure that these don't become battlegrounds for the exchange of vituperative partisanship. We try and creep a space that's open. We don't do a terrific job about this, by the way, the criticisms that universities are inhabited, controlled, and dominated by a tyrannous liberal political correctness has some truth to it. So we've got a lot of work to do on our sides to keep it open. But the, the authoritarian populist attack on universities that I see is one that says you're just another, you know, liberal political actor like every, like you're a political opponent. Uh, their view of universities is Leninist, who whom, right? You're the enemy, we are going to bring you to heel. The very idea that a university is not in that sense a political actor, that we have another role which is to create a space in which 
political argument, political discussion, knowledge-based can be exchanged, is actually explicitly refuted by the conception uh, that we are facing in Eastern Europe. Let me make another point uh, which emphasizes, I think, the sense that this is not fascism. There, there, there's no political police in Hungary. Um, there are no political prisoners. There's no explicit use of political violence. These are, this is a modern 21st century form in which the regime survives by a state of constant attack politics. Um, every single poster on the way to the airport yesterday afternoon says, stop George Soros. Every poster, not just the occasional, every poster. So constant total mobilization, which has two effects. One, it mobilizes the electoral base on which the regime depends, and it disgusts everybody else so they don't vote. It's simultaneously a strategy of mobilization and a strategy of demobilization. And it doesn't require violence to reproduce itself. So in that sense, it's, it's a new and an interesting political form. Um, let me say a little bit about the, I've tried to define authoritarian populism in generic terms. Let me say a few uh, features about one particular thing, which is the European Union's function as an unwilling enabler. This is, I think, a feature that needs to be understood better than it is. Authoritarian populist regimes in Eastern Europe, if you remember uh, Hirschman's famous distinctions between voice and exit, these are regimes that confiscate voice but allow exit. There are 500,000 Hungarians living outside Hungary. If you don't like this regime, you can leave. It's not like uh, communist regimes where the exits were barred. So that Schengen, which is, in my view, a great achievement, has a kind of um, collusive role in sustaining these regimes. Uh, all the dissenting voices simply head to Austria, Germany, or Great Britain. They don't stay. And so the European project unintentionally has had a stabilizing effect on authoritarian regimes in Eastern Europe. Uh, secondly, European structural funds, the large inward investment by Europe into these economies, becomes a massive slush fund for regimes that have captured the state. Four billion euros floods into Hungary, and I don't want to make unfounded allegations, but a lot of people don't know where the hell that money's gone, and they have some suspicions of where it might have ended up. This also stabilizes the regime. It produces GDP growth. So Europe simultaneously criticizes the regime, and we've had much criticism from European Commission about uh, the law that is giving us a problem from the European Commission. We're grateful for the support. But the European institutions, in fact, have a stabilizing effect on these kind of regimes. Um, and I don't see um, Europe being the, s the solution to the problem. In certain ways, the only solution will lie, needless to say, in the hands of the citizens of these countries 
who will finally decide enough is enough. They'll decide enough is enough because of corruption. They'll decide enough is enough because they're treated like fools. They'll decide for all kinds of reasons. I don't, the, it is not the burden of this talk to suggest that authoritarian populism is the new future. It is not my purpose to tell you there is no hope. All I would say is that the dynamics of change will be driven by the domestic electorates of these societies. Let me say just a little, because I want to make sure we have time for questions about the place of universities in this new uh, configuration. Um, in most uh, countries in Central and Eastern Europe, universities are essentially funded by the state. The amount of direct institutional control over everything in these places is considerable and growing. People forget in Western Europe that there are some very ancient and extremely good universities founded in the 16th and 17th century throughout Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe has a great intellectual tradition, but all of these universities are state-funded and therefore susceptible to the kinds of controls that the Polish regime, the Czech Republic, the Hungarian regime can impose. And they are also, these regimes are also in the business of creating their own counter-institutions. They're creating their own schools of public administration to train reliably loyal servants of these regimes. So they're thinking long term. My institution is a private institution with a private endowment. So we can stand up and we can fight. I'd like to tell you it's because we're such uniquely brave individuals, but I also, honesty and my familiarity with um, my Marxist reading tells me I ought to tell you about the economic basis upon which we resist, and we resist because we've got the resources to stand up and say, hell no. But it's depend it reinforces in my mind the enormous importance for European universities everywhere to be as independent of state funding as they possibly can, or at least get as many pots on the stove as you can, because when push comes to shove uh, and you are under the thumb of exclusive state funding, you have a real problem about defending your institutional autonomy and academic freedom. Um, we have fought back against the attempt to close us down in Hungary, and we've done so by essentially saying as simply as we can that our fight, and this I think is important for universities in general, a university's fight to be free and to retain its freedom is not a fight for us. It's a fight for everybody. It's absolutely crucial to the battle for academic freedom and institutional autonomy in Britain, everywhere, to make to have universities present a case to the public that is a case for all of us because otherwise it looks like simply like a defense of the institutional prestige and privileges of a particular elite. So the challenge for universities to say is our fight is your fight too. The politics of this depend crucially on making everybody feel that academic freedom is a, is a general cause which means, I think, uh, linking universities in a way that we haven't done with the idea that universities are a counter-majoritarian institution. You may not like us very much sometimes, but we're like the courts. We're like a free press. We are a crucial counterbalance 
to majorities when majorities get things wrong. Now, the specific function of universities, and I hardly need, need to say this in an institution whose motto is to know the causes of things. One of the great mottos, by the way, of any institution is this one's, because it puts the focus on what universities are supposed to be about. We are the guardians of a thing called knowledge. Our business is relatively simple to say there is such a thing as knowledge. It actually exists. It's extremely hard to find it. We debate about what it is, but it can be found and known. And when you've got it, a society has some capacity, limited capacity, but some capacity to chart its political future on the basis of facts, on the basis of knowledge, on the basis of experience. A society that abandons that commitment to knowledge is a society that's flying blind. We're counter-majoritarian in that specific sense. In a post-truth, post-fact, your opinions are as good as mine, everything, you know, the constant um, buzz of a kind of nihilistic relativism the university's function of saying, oh, wait a minute, folks, there is a thing called knowledge is more important than ever. <clears throat> and we do it in two ways. We train people in the arduous, unrelenting, difficult disciplines of knowing what knowledge is. And secondly, we provide a public space like this moment here now in which we say there is such a thing as knowledge. Here's what it looks like. And it may not be what you want to hear, but it's what there is. Um, so we're the epistemological gatekeepers of a post-truth era, and we need to reassert that uh, proudly, and we need to say we do it on behalf of society. We do it on, because we think that without that gatekeeping function, societies fly blind. We are also there to protect minority and unpopular opinion, opinion that people don't like, opinion that conflicts with majority sentiment. Um, and we're there to credential public servants and uh, people in the private sector, credential on the basis that we send them out in the world with some bloody idea of what knowledge actually is in a discipline so that they can serve the public, so that they can serve their companies with some sense that this is not just um, all a matter of taste, all a matter of opinion, or a matter of what I've just pulled up on my, on my feed on my phone. Um, and, and I think we've become um, uh, more cautious about this, and we've talked a language of social utility, um, a language cued to innovation, a, a language cued to job creation, a language cued to um, our, our social function, which I think has stepped aside from the epistemological function of defending creating or defending and enlarging what you could call the archipelago of knowledge <laughs> and, and saying it's here, it exists, it's real, and if you want to know what the public policy of a country should be shaped by, it depends on some kind of grasp of that archipelago, its boundaries, and its, and its um, shape. Um, and I think a fight back by universities 
that explicitly says we're a counter-majoritarian institution. We have an epistemological function which is essential to a free society. Um, <clears throat> I've found when we do this in Hungary, which is pretty adverse climate, what happens is that 70,000 people come into the street and march past your windows saying, a free society and a free university. We had nothing to do with those demonstrations. Why did they happen? Because people hear something that says, this is for you, right? I never gave a speech in the course of this. I'm a modest and shy and retiring character. It was all done by Hungarians who recognized in what we were trying to do some sense that this was about them and their country. I don't, that doesn't guarantee a result. I can tell you as I conclude that we're right in, still in the middle of this battle and it's not over and it's not decided. There's an election in Hungary in April and we will see what the people of Hungary decide. The challenge in doing this and the challenge a university has in defending itself as an epistemological gatekeeper, as a counter-majoritarian institution, is not to be dragged into a partisan political debate where it's bound to lose. It's got to find a ground in which it says, we're here for everybody, liberal, conservative, socialist, Marxist, whoever you are, you want to have a society where there are free institutions, and a free university is one of them. Um, I will stop there and hope we have a great conversation. Thank you. Michael, why don't you come and join me here? I will, with pleasure. You, you uh, said that you didn't want it to be a talk without hope, but it wasn't exactly a cheery story. <laughs> and uh, it reminded me, in some ways, of something that was raised by somebody you wrote a great book about, uh, by Isaiah Berlin, he, in, a, in a, what he called the, his message to the 21st century. Um, he sort of anticipated the, something like the powerlessness of thought which was committed to tolerance, rationality, and democracy in the face of things that you want to run around with flags about. And he, he said it's never those things, rationality, tolerance, democracy, you're not going to get big crowds running around for them. Mm. And he had no way of... Uh, trying to make us feel good about that fact. But he, he did feel it was unusually optimistic because he thought that actually it was going to win. But he didn't really have any reason to think it. And he was very strongly aware of that sort of motivational deficit. Now, you've tried to perhaps build something of, a, of a, uh, an effective response to, that could make us feel urgent about what needs to be done. But won't the kind of position that you're defending, which is defending this uh, um, non-majoritarian position, always, precisely because of that, be, as it were, affect light? And then it will always be difficult to sort of mobilize. Yes. Uh, well, having had a triumphantly successful political career in which my capacity to generate passionate affect in my favor was lacking, um, what, can, you know, what can I say? Um, um, what I would say on the basis of the, my political experience is, again, they don't vote for you, but it, it's a terrible thing to underestimate 
the yearning of the public to be told the truth and to be talked to in a, in a real way. Um, I don't want to overdo that, but um, in a period when uh, of what I called uh, digital disinhibition, yeah. and algorithmic segregation, um, the experience of actually doing politics um, led me to feel that hunger to be, to be talked to, to be debated, to learn, to listen, to be together uh, physically uh, in hot rooms where do, people do you, are... Do you think that's impossible on the Internet? I mean, is, it, is that... Well, because it's not going to go away, is it? So It should be possible. Um, and I don't want to sound like an old reactionary about this because the Internet is doing a lot of absolutely wonderful things. I mean, it seems a bit silly to be down on the Internet when I carry in my pocket, well, it's actually down in my wife's handbag, the equivalent of the Library of Alexandria. I mean, you know, I mean, let's not, let's not be stupid here. I mean, this is wonderful. We just, we're in the middle of the Gutenberg Revolution. That's what we're in, and we just don't know how it's going to sort out. And the Internet has enormously positive uh, possibilities for bringing and rallying people together. I said a minute ago that we had 70,000 people demonstrating in our favor. How did that happen? Because one student put one post on one Facebook page and it went kaboom, right? So we got to be positive about that. Okay. Um, you're talking though in a, in a, about a more fundamental question, which is that um, people who love constitutional liberty, who love the counter-majoritarian balance of majority versus, uh, you know, and the protection of minority rights, um, do a pretty lousy job of selling their passion because it's it's a little complicated, um, and it may be that our experience of authoritarian populism um, will make us. It's like Joni Mitchell. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. You know. I mean, there, there's a real sense in which the British. I mean, I, I tread into this carefully. The British didn't realize just how much they cared about British liberty until, you know, Dunkirk. Basically, I don't want to go there. I don't want to foster the Bre Brexit fascination with Dunkirk. But it seems to me democracy acquires its passion when democracy is really in peril and people then really say, God almighty, I really don't want to leave it. I don't want to be treated like a fool. I don't want to be manipulated by these politicians who treat me like an idiot. Um, the promises are false. I, I also think finally that, and this makes me a rationalist, facts are stubborn things. The weakness of authoritarian populism, if we switch to, for a second, to Trump, the problem is not electing Trump. The real damage that Trump will do to democracy is that he has made one set of false promises to vulnerable people <laughs> after another to get elected. These are the same people who voted for Barack Obama because they were desperate for change. They're going to go through three election cycles in which they don't get a goddamn thing out of their vote. That's what frightens me. And that I do feel passionate about. It's not that they voted for these guys. It's that they got nothing from it. And if we're not frightened about that, we really should be. Okay, great. Well, let's open this up. Um are there microphones? Okay, so if you just... Uh, 
wait for the mic when I point you out, so if you put up your hand if you want to speak. There was one there, yeah. Um, I'm Gabriel Paltus from the Economist Intelligence Unit, and I was wondering, Professor Ma Michael, uh, Professor Ignatiev, if you could just update us on the, the latest score, as it were, in the, uh, in the game between Hungarian government versus the Central European University. Right. Very, very briefly, because I've become my, that's why having my wife here is quality control is so important. I'm a kind of pub bore on the subject, so I'll have to, I want to be as concise as I can. There is a road to a solution. Uh, we are accredited in the state of New York. The governor of New York, Andy Cuomo, kindly said, stepped into this crisis and said, I'll give you my lawyer and I'll get talking to the Hungarian government. And by September, they had crafted a two-page agreement that basically says, CEU can stay in Budapest and here's what CEU has to do. We have to establish an American program. And I said, fine. Compromise, great. The, the compromise deal has sat on the Prime Minister's desk since September. We don't expect signature until April after the election, but we fervently hope there will be a signature. Our university is always going to be difficult in Hungary. We'll always be critical of the regime. We're not a political institution, but we're a university. So what, what, what do you expect? We're going to be difficult. But if he's smart, he'll clear this thing off uh, because this is not a threat. It, it, the point is there is a price to be paid if you shut down a free institution in Europe. There, there is a price. I can tell you what the price is, it, and it will not be small. And I have nothing to do with imposing the price. The price is imposed in Washington or Brussels or Berlin or whatever, but it will be imposed. And so we hope that they will see sense and, 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 and come to a solution. Because we really do want to stay there. It's our home. We've done good work there, and we hope that some of you students who are thinking of a good master's or PhD will give us a, give us a look. Okay. Uh, there's one at the top here. If you, can you make your way down to the bottom? Um, thank you very much. It's very interesting. Um, obviously, you're talking about um, the rise of the Internet and people communicating and I suppose even interacting with politicians directly on, on media such as Twitter. And I suppose that's inevitable with the sort of fragmentation and atomization of society that's happened. I mean, Robert Putnam, who's an uh, advisor to Bill Clinton in the 90s, wrote a book about this, Bowling Alone, which talked about the sort of fragmentation and atomization of society. So we've moved on from that. But I'm, I'm very skeptical of your, your terminology here. And obviously Noam Chomsky um, used the, uh, talked about language and how important it is and how institutions and governments, for that matter, can manipulate language. And I, I feel you've done the same thing with authoritarian populism. Populism is simply the democratic will of the majority uh, and... Uh, in, in, if anything, populism is the, the counter to institutional control, the counter to uh, government control. Um, so I'd say, I mean, you, you complain, for example, about the posters in Hungary about uh, the anti-George Soros, but of course George Soros has himself funded <coughs> lots of advertising campaigns, funded protests, as indeed have the European institutions for the mm. Remain campaign. So I think, you know, you could very easily take a lot of what you said and sort of flip it on its head. Okay. Let me, let me, I think that's a good challenge. You may have missed the part when I said there's a democratic populism. 
I mean, an anti-elite revolt against these, these elites that provided it's, and, and often can be, respectful and supportive of the constitutional system and constitutional liberties, bring it on. Seems to me excellent. I, I, I explicitly said I don't want to use populism as a swear word because you can back yourself into a very bad place in which you don't like, you know, the majority. I, I, I just I, felt I, that the, the term authoritarian... I, I, having sort of put my name on a ballot, it. I've earned a, a great deal of respect for <laughs> democratic majority, especially when they kick you in the backside. So I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. The issue here is the constitutional gerrymandering that has gone on in Hungary since 2010. The ways in which the electoral system is deliberately tilted in the favor of the single party. The ways in which the independent constitutional court has been neutered. The ways in which the free press have been suppressed. So you get majoritarianism in that context you have no counter-majoritarian guardrails. That's the problem. It's not whether you like or respect a, a, a genuine d democratic uh, system. This one has been gerrymandered, so one guy gets to win. And that's what should be of concern. Um, <clears throat> and, and this is why the book I quoted... Uh, I cited um, by Steve Levitsky and Daniel Zeblatt, How Democracies Die. These people are terrific political scientists with particular experience in Latin America. And there they, they cite case after case after case where systems that have good democratic constitutions get slowly taken apart by this kind of authoritarian populism. Venezuela, Argentina... Um, Ecuador. I mean, you can go on. So, um, just just to help. There's us out, something though. global going on, and 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 this is the populism that bothers me. Not not a democratic populism, which maybe will make for change in Britain. But how do you, how do you uh, how do you start to distinguish the two? What is what are going to be the sort of characteristics of, that will make it authoritarian rather than democratic? Given that they're both, as it were, backed by the popular will. Well. Again, the personalism, the focus on the leader, the, um, and this kind of plebiscitary consultation structure. I mean, I cannot, you're going to think I'm, I, I'm exaggerating, but the Hungarian population was sent a circular about migration in the fall, seven questions. So this is... This is democratic consultation with the public, right? You think this ought to be terrific. Governments ought to be sending out questionnaires to the public asking their opinion. I'm 100% in favor of that, right? And the governments should damn well listen to what governments... But if you have questions that say, you know, <clears throat> um, a certain external financier wants to flood Hungary with a million migrants of Muslim and African origin... Do you think that's a good idea? Yes or no? You're aware that you're in, you know, and I'm not here to defend Mr. Soros. Mr. Soros made plenty of mistakes. I don't take orders from him, and I'm not here to defend him. But that question is such a flagrant and contemptuous manipulation of democracy, and it goes on. I mean, it wasn't one question. There are like ten of them. Um, that's where you begin to see people 
using democracy essentially to subvert democracy. And that, it seems to me, there's a lot of this going around. And you've got to stand up to it. Okay, good. Uh, one at the back. Yeah. And then here. Hello, thank you very much for coming in for your talk. Uh, my question is on legalism creeping into place of rule of law. Do you think this is a legacy of post-communist regimes, or can you think of other examples where this happens outside of the region? Thank you. I think there's a risk everywhere that um, there's a kind of, if you put something in legal form, it has a kind of fetishistic effect. I think all societies run the risk of a certain kind of legalism. But rule of law is something very robust and clear. It's an independent, appellate legal system that allows uh, the judges to reverse executive decisions and legislative decisions that are inconsistent with the Constitution or inconsistent with statute. I mean, the rule of law is something. It's not a concept. It's an institutional structure. And these regimes... um, and this would connect with your point about the communist legacy, these were regimes that never, Hungary did not have an independent judicial system under single party communist rule. It did not have a rule of law tradition in that sense. And so it's produced a kind of simulacrum of the rule of law in which there is a constitutional court, there are courts, there are justices, but everybody knows the appointments are essentially controlled by the ruling party. Um, Our case about the constitutionality of our Lex CU, this law that's got us by the throat, we launched a constitutional challenge early May. It's still pending before the constitutional court, and we've been told they won't touch it till after the election. What does that tell you? That tells you that the constitutional court of a great country is essential, that timetable is being dictated by electoral politics in a flagrant, explicit way. That's what I mean. And so the law looks like law, sounds like law, walks like law, but it ain't law because it has no connection to an independent institutional structure that has any independence from the the ruling party. And I think that is a a malign consequence of the communist era. But I would say that it's this problem of the rule of law being eroded from inside, so you get legalism instead of the rule of law, is a challenge in every democracy. Part of the message I, I, I wouldn't want you to take is, oh, poor old Hungary, you know. Actually, authoritarian populism and the disintegration of the rule of law and the erosion of constitutional rule, it seems to me, is a generic 21st century challenge that takes different forms in different countries. And that's why the Levitsky-Ziblatt book is so interesting because it's great political comparativists looking at it across a wide range of examples, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Eastern Europe, and saying, Folks, we have a generic problem. Uh, One down here and then up here. Uh, Terence Bendixson, University of Southampton. Thank you for your talk. Uh, I have a small anecdote 
I have a son and daughter-in-law living in Stroud who've recently modernised two buildings, two houses, one for themselves and one for my daughter-in-law's parents. One house was done by some angry English builders who have um, had to reduce their prices because of competition from Polish builders. They did a lousy job. The other job was done by some Polish builders <laughs> who did a good job. What do we in the liberal elite whose jobs are not threatened, who live a comfortable <coughs> life, what do we say to those angry uh, English builders who incidentally did vote exit? Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> That's a great question. We <laughs> which is what you say when you're desperate to get a little time to think your answer to. Um, and it relates to an earlier question about, you know, the, the weakness of liberal or progressive argument. And there, there's no question we're paying a very high price. If you look at the history of immigration and immigration policy in Britain and France, and there's been a very good recent study published by Princeton about this. One thing that comes out of that study is that we walked backwards into the future with political leaders in France, Germany, and Britain saying, it's not really happening. They're just coming for a while. They're going to go home. We need them now because the economy is booming in the 60s. Um, when we go into Europe, we'll have some immigration, but not very much. They're not gonna, we're not going to have a problem with the polls when we're asked. I'm a, because I'm a Canadian and I come from a perfect country, which has made a perfect success of multiculturalism, I'm, and because I'm also the son and grandson of refugees, I'm signed up for a multicultural, multi-ethnic society with generous migration and refugee policies. But I think our side of the argument did a terrible job talking people through the changes and saying, this is what's going to happen. This is where we're going. Sometimes it's for honest reasons. That is, we didn't actually know what we were getting ourselves into. And sometimes we thought, let's just play this down and get ourselves through the next election or the next problem. There was a radical failure to, to make a case. Um, and then I think there's some other things that have triggered a, um, a huge backlash here. I'm a defender of an open society, but I don't think open society means open borders. The paradox of my perfect country, Canada, is that we have a, a migration policy that is relentlessly cued to getting the people we want to the degree that we can. Secondly, premised on very tight border control. If you come across the Canadian border, it's not, it's not a picnic. It's also premised on the fact that we got the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Arctic, right? So it's not that easy to get in, right? <laughs> And Canadians, we sing a happy story about how bloody wonderful we are, but we've been gifted with a whole set of historically geographic facts which are extremely important to this. And then we're enormously large, so we have a kind of sense that there's got to be room for something. 
But not every country is the same as that. Not every country has been dealt the same set of cards. And, um, and so I think there's been a, we haven't talked this through. We haven't been honest with the public. Um, I don't know what exactly to say in Stroud. I just, I don't quite know what to say. Um, the one thing I'd say is there's no excuse for doing a bloody bad job, actually. <laughs> right? I mean, come on, you know. You know. <laughs> okay, Michael, thank you. Thank you. Um, my name is Eleni Correa. I'm a journalist for Research Fortnite. We've spoken a couple... I'm upstairs. Sorry, I can't see where you are. Up On there, the balcony. Up the top. Oh, sorry. Hi. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we've spoken a couple times on the phone. I wanted... <laughs> uh, for news articles. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit more about what you said. You alluded to the fact that there might be consequences in Brussels, Washington, um, Berlin, if... Hungary doesn't sign the deal that will allow CEU to operate. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that. And I was also interested in what you said about authoritarian regimes, new authoritarian regimes, being able to crowdsource, crowdsource resentment. I think CEU is a great example of crowdsourcing hope because you've managed to get a lot of support globally after the law. And I wanted to ask what we can do, what politicians can do to crowdsource more hope than resentment. Mm. Um. I, I sometimes get a little rhetorically advanced, and I talked about the consequences. I kind of conjured up, you know, da da, da da. No, I just think there are political consequences in the bilateral relations that Hungary has with the United States if they walk away from a bona fide agreement signed by a big state like New York State. And we've had tremendous support. This is interesting. The Trump administration, you know, despite Donald Trump, the United States government has been extremely steadfast in supporting CU, and I therefore intuit that if he walks away, this will not be good for the bilateral relationship between the United States and Hungary. I don't, you know, I don't, that's way above my pay grade, but I think it's a reasonable assumption. In the same way that if you... Um, have introduced a piece of legislation which uh, a lot of lawyers, serious lawyers, think is a violation of European law and will not stand examination in the European Court of Justice, there will be legal consequences. I think there are bilateral consequences also with the, the, uh, the Merkel government in Germany were they to stiff or reject the clear indications from the government of Germany that this matter has to be cleared up. Um, as for um, crowdsourcing hope versus crowdsourcing resentment, um, I think that's a very good way to put it. I think we need to crowdsource hope. And CU is a little institution that's doing its mighty best to crowdsource. My, my and, and one of the things, just to finish that up, which is a, a message for universities, I, I think we often feel kind of embattled and apologetic and kind of on the back foot. And I think we need to look at our networks with a cold eye to the power that we can mobilize. I'm, we're a, CU is a small institution, but we have 15,000 graduates. 
That's not nobody. And they're all over the world. And then you look at the networks that academics have. I mean, you, you can do this at LSE where everything I'm saying is multiplied by a factor of 15 or 20 because you're, you know, you're a big institution. If you activate those networks, if you come under attack or somebody takes a cheap shot at universities in general, the LSE in particular, and you mobilize those networks on social media, look out. I mean, this is raw politics, and universities are, are sort of apologetic about it all. But we are in a political battle. If, if a politician gets up and says, I want to see all the syllabi of people who, you know, support remain, you're in a political battle. I mean, that's what's going on. And there's seething resentment out there that can be exploited. And we've got to make a democratic case. I, I'm worried that we're trying to rally a flag again, that we're not going to have the... Uh power to mobilize, because if you, you talked earlier about um, both uh, Obama and Trump, in a way, rallying people behind them on the grounds of a hope, mm-hmm. particularly, I mean, it, it literally for um, Obama, mm-hmm. and you were worried that actually too much politics of hope is going to be a difficult thing, because you, you've got to deliver, and that's nigh on impossible for any nation state these days. And so perhaps... Uh, Earlier on, you were saying that you could talk perhaps of a contrasting politics of memory, which just want to say, no, we're not going to go down that road again. Uh, and yes. Rather than, but again, you know, who's going to rally behind that? Well, the problem with the politics of memory which is, is, again, a thing that you feel when you get to my age. It's a, a, a weird thing that for my generation, I'm born after the Second World War, Fascism was a visceral reality because, you know, my mom and dad and my, you know, my, my, my family was, you know, it, it was a reality, a lived reality. Evoking the, the dangers of the past is inevitably with time less, less, less potent, less strong. And as I've said in the, in the talk, I think the analogy between authoritarian populism and Fascism is actively misleading simply because the authoritarian populism we're looking at, this slow subversion of democracy within, does not require um, political, explicit political violence. I mean, the defining character of fascism is that it uses violence to secure and hold power and uses terror to maintain power. You know, whatever you think about Mr. Orban, th- this is not a fascist dictatorship using terror to maintain power. It just isn't. Is something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got to be careful about conjuring up the, 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 the past. But on the issue of hope, I mean, here, here, get out your violins. I'm going to be a little sentimental. But you, you can't do a university job without understanding the kind of epistemology of hope. If you're a classroom teacher and you see the light go on, that's what you're looking at. And if we don't believe that that's what's going on, we might as well pack up and go home. We really do change lives. We do it one at a time. We often betray the promise. I mean, we don't do as good a job as we should, but that is the, the job description. And, um, and you see it everywhere. You see people whose lives are simply different because of LSE or they're different because of CU. And that's why we care about these institutions. So. I think that's what we want to say. We, we are in the business of changing lives, creating opportunity, giving people a shot who never had it. And that's the story. When we tell it, 
that lights up the board. And people say, yeah, that, that is what you do. That's a good violin. Can I? <laughs> down here. Wait for the microphone if you don't mind. Um, hi, so my question is actually follows on from that about the idea of the university as a contra-majoritarian institution. And so while what you have been doing might be taken up the networks of academics and individuals, but really what's the place for other institutions in following uh, up on this? Europe is full of networks. I don't know, have you had much uh, response from them and on this particular line? be really interesting to hear. Yes, Europe is, is absolutely full of networks. Um, and it's interesting to watch networks at work. You know, a university gets clobbered by something like this, and everybody kind of looks around, and kind of, where's my, how, how do I activate my network? So you've got German citizens who are on your faculty, and they suddenly fan out to German academic life, you know, and it has a geometric progression. Suddenly, every single academic institution in Germany seemed to be sending us a message of support. I had nothing to do with it. It's just the network effect of everybody deploying. And I think that's a strength that universities have that's very, very special. Um, every academic in this room has a network. And you use it for a, it's a research network. It's a network of your former students. Uh, it's a network of professional associations. And we need to understand how these things work because they are the, the essential political resource that we have if it gets tough out there. And it might get tough. Uh, there's a kind of ugly climate. I, I feel this in Britain a bit. You know, I, you know vice chancellors are overpaid. Yeah, they, sometimes they are, right? Um, you know, show me your expenses. Um, everything you do is useless. Um, tyranny of political correctness. There's a lot of this going around. And, and if this stuff starts to gel and move, we better get our networks ready. And the European networks are extremely useful. Now, that's a problem for you guys because you're, you're being dragged away. Just, just and I have a fervent hope that... That's another function of universities, which you need to quietly um, uh, exercise, which is that the greatness of British university life has, has been, in fact, that you are absolutely plugged into European networks. You're, you run the best uh, academic system in Europe. It seems to me heartbreaking that somebody's taking you out of that, so you just have to fight that and say, no, hell no, we're going to stay as plugged into those networks as we ever were. I think there's going to be a great effort at that. The, the um, point you mentioned, though, in the middle of that answer about the, well, you just called it their political correctness, but actually in your talk you, you worried about the fact that universities as free, as free spaces need lots of voices, uh, you know, one side and putting a claim and another a counterclaim, and, and that that's how as it were, the dialectic works. Mm -hmm. And you were a little bit worried that the, of the, uh, I don't know, the monological voice of, of the modern university. Is that a serious issue, or is that, as it were, just a passing thing? Or is it, as it were, a condition of the times that we're in? I think it is a bit worrying. I, I, I don't think we've got a good story to tell here about this. I... I um, I think we do a much better job at talking to ourselves. 
if you're a kind of sort of semi-liberal progressive person than we do to talking across divides. I think we're not as pluralist as we claim to be. Um, I think we're... Um, um, and I, some of this is much more prevalent in the United States and to a lesser degree in Canada. We've got absolutely terrified by speech. You know, I mean, people say things that contest the identity claims or the value claims of others, and we take speech as a hurt, as a harm. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to be simple-minded, but my mom did say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words cannot harm me. I mean, I, I do feel we need to... <laughs> We need to be more robust about the very idea of speech and 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 identity claims, and so <clears throat> our universities, because we're at the cutting edge of changes in identity, particularly gender identity changes, and that's where we ought to be. We ought to be a place where people are changing and becoming different and exploring and asserting identity claims. But you know, boy, oh boy, we've we've. We backed into a kind of. We're too. Everybody is too easily hurt, and I don't. I don't want to be misheard. There are people whose um, identities have been subjected to discrimination, insult, condescension, uh, unpleasantness for a very long time, and they are entitled to full respect and an attempt. You know, but. We can't back ourselves into a, into a, a world in which we construe um, uh, speech as harm in the automatic way we've done. Uh, and I'm troubled about this as a university person who invites people. And I, it, this is self-criticism. I often invite the people I want to hear, you know, and the, the people I want to hear turn out to be people who say things that kind of like I say or you know you know what I mean and so you get into a kind Shocking. of you get in and yeah you get into a you, you don't intend to do this but you end up in a in a monolinguistic thing so there are two things that are not good we've we we're too frightened of speech and we feel too harmed by speech and on the other hand we've we got some pretty we got a filter bubble problem big time Okay, good. Uh, question uh, there is the next one, and then there. No, no, not the first one. The second one was first. You, you criticised the EU about uh, freedom of movement and, uh, and structural funds. just wondered if you uh, think those should be cancelled and uh, what else the EU should do. And I wonder if you see the, the EU's response to Poland as being a bit of a, a learning. You know, they, they, they recognised they screwed up with Hungary. They took the lie off the ball. They, they allowed all sorts of terrible things to go on. Do you, do you see their response to Poland as being sort of growing a pair of balls almost? I hope so. Um, the politics are this tremendously complicated. When Europe, you know, bears down on rule of law violations, constitutional violations in Poland, it makes the ruling party's day because it then feeds their narrative. So <clears throat> the dilemma that the commission has, particularly the commission, is these guys are begging for a fight, and when you give it to them, that they then use it to mobilize the base. So you get into a kind of 
political dialectic that's very difficult to control because the determinants are the local political system. Um, <clears throat> I think they... What you hear around Brussels is uh, the Hungarians always take you up to the red line and then walk back, but the Poles, they're really crazy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so they kind of feel they've got to deal with Poland because Poland doesn't, doesn't seem to stop at red lines. Kaczynski is a much more ideological, possessed and driven, kind of demonic figure. This is not said in disparagement. I mean, he's, a, you know, he's that kind of politician, whereas Orban is much more a po power politician who reacts to pressure and counter-pressure. That's the, that's the story. <clears throat> How this turns out, I don't, I don't know. I'm not actually super optimistic that the commission itself can do much either with Poland or Hungary, and, and because one of the things that goes on in Europe, which I think we all need to be, and this is not meant to feed an anti-European narrative, because I'm very pro-European, and these institutions are a huge historic achievement. But there is no doubt that the European Council is where the power is, that is the, the meeting of the member states. And what the member states doesn't, don't really want to do, they hand to the commission. And the commission has weak legal remedies. And the legal remedies are important to me because these are the remedies that the commission is using in respect of Lex CEU. But there's a kind of weird game going on here. The, the, what the, when the member states don't want to pick up the phone and say, come on, fix this damn problem, they pass it to the commission. And so there's a kind of pass the parcel thing, which is not good for the European project. And, and I think the public senses it. And I'm not, I mean, the only reason the European project survives is there's simply no alternative to it. But that's not, that's not particularly inspiring thought. No, not at all. And at the back, yeah. Well, thank you for an interesting analysis um, of the role of universities in the face of populism, which I agree with what you have said. My question is, what do we do in the university to reach beyond our networks? What do we do in this country to reach to the people who voted leave? who can see a situation, they don't see a situation where anything could be worse and there is no upside. So how do we reach out to them and, and include them in our world? Yeah. Oh boy, I like these easy questions. Yeah. It's just, um, I, I'm not going to answer the question directly because I actually don't know. I, I was going to say something else about this, which is I think we have a prior problem. And this is a kind of, having done... Um, some television broadcasting myself, I'm very sensitive about this, is that one of the things that will help universities a lot and academic life a lot is if when academics go on the television and radio, we talk about what we actually know something about as opposed to what, you know, because one of the one of the almost moral temptations of, of, of intellectual life is that you start there, are, there is stuff you know. you know. There, there is knowledge of which you have a secure and stable grasp. But constantly, and, I, and I've done it myself, that's why this is a, a self-critical reflection, 
we, we erode the legitimacy of universities. We erode the legitimacy of our institutions, and we erode our own legitimacy by becoming experts about every goddamn thing, right? As opposed to saying, look, I'm sorry, I just, you know, I don't know anything about that. So there's a prior problem. Before you can reach, leave, or remain, or any of these people, there's a kind of intellectual humility which, there is such a thing as expertise, and we gotta stand by it and defend it, but expertise is quite specific, and when we start straying and offering our opinions on every subject, people watching us and listening to us think, why the hell is this guy pontificating about my life? Why is he telling me what happened, goes on in Sunderland? He knows squat about Sunderland, right? Or he knows squat about, you know, some place that's voted Brexit. And he has some social science theory about why I voted Brexit. And I feel condescended to, do you know what I mean? And we've got to think that problem through. Because we speak not over the... We appropriate people's lived experience sometimes in ways that rubs people badly wrong. And that's a problem we all need to think about more. And I've got that wrong constantly in my life and have learned partly because I was in politics and got knocked around. You've got to be very careful when you talk to people. Because the other reality is leavers know what they know. They're not deluded. They know what they know. It is true to their experience. Unless you start from some recognition that actually they weren't just in some delusion because Boris Johnson told them a lot of fairy stories, they actually voted to exit because they, they want to exit for a whole bunch of important, substantial reasons. Then we could begin to have a, a conversation here. Okay, but it, it requires, I'm sorry to go on, it requires us to reflect a little more honestly about our authority, our legitimacy, our right to speak on these issues. Good, thanks. Uh, one here, yeah. Uh, thank you, AFC student here. Uh, I really appreciate you mentioned China and uh, you know that academic freedom in China is quite limited, and now it's even carry on like censorship and propaganda in UK, US, and everywhere. And domestically, the Communist Party, though there's no need for voting, but they enjoy the ridiculous popularity among lower class people. So my question is: Should uh, academics, intellectuals? Well, return there and try to challenge, to fight, resist, and in the worst case, facing like imprisonment and death, like Nobel laureate last year. Or we stay here, we chicken out and enjoy the freedom, be a world citizen, and speak to people who have not really interested in that at all. Right. China. Wow. Um. Not a big country. You've, the back end of your question posed a real ex existential issue about um, because the point I made earlier about um, um, the exit possibilities allowed by Europe are also true in relation to China. If you can't stand China, you can leave. And it's one of the features of, of uh, 21st century globalization that's so important. Exit is stabilizing all these regimes. If you're fed up with China, you 
buy an apartment if you can in Vancouver and you live in Vancouver and you, you know, or you in, in Britain. So these regimes are very savvy about that. Um, if you're a Russian and you are uh, fed up with Putin, you just expatriate your, your, your holdings to a rule of law country like Britain. And so Britain becomes a kind of unwilling enabler of authoritarian populism in Russia, the same in China. Huge capital flows out of China, huge people flows out of China. Um, and some of the most important people flows are students. I mean, there are kind of 275,000 Chinese students in the United States. You know, I mean, this is a very important safety valve for, for, for these regimes. Um, the other aspect of China that's so important, I think, uh, for the ideology of authoritarian populism in democratic regimes is the enormous prestige and success of single-party rule in China. That is, when, you know, an authoritarian populist says, history is on my side, you know, history is not on the side of liberal democracy, one of the chief examples they use is China. This is a country that's had extraordinary growth and development in a, under a single-party regime. The price has been horrendous in terms of liberty, in terms of many other things, environment, whatever. But the prestige of China at the moment is one of the legitimating factors of single-party authoritarianism around the world. And that, particularly in Africa, where, you know, so... As for your own uh, uh, personal dilemmas, those are of the most serious kind, and only a fool would give you advice because these are. It, if I <clears throat> if I urge you to go back and fight for freedom and democracy, um, that entails risks that I can't calculate or anticipate, and only you can. And they're very very serious matters. I think it's wonderful that you feel. Um, uh, an obligation to do something about it. Take care of yourself, though. Okay, Michael, we've got one more up here, maybe the last one. I know there's been a lot of people <coughs> wanting to talk. But... Um, good afternoon. Um, I think my question relates a bit uh, to, to the question posed early. Uh, you have been talking the whole evening about defending universities as liberal institutions uh, in the age of the new populism. Well, I come from Ukraine. I'm, I'm teaching in, the, in Ukraine. I've been involved in, in policy making in higher education in Ukraine. Um, and my question is, is a bit more complicated. Can you create universities as liberal institutions in non-liberal environment, uh, well, particularly with a war on the east of Ukraine? And, and but that is a separate problem, I think, in that context. But is there any hope, I'm sort of crowdsourcing hope here, <laughs> is there any hope for creating a liberal university in a non-liberal, non-democratic or semi-democratic context? Do you see something like that happening in Hungary with the, with the public institutions over there? Or do you think it can only be created from scratch within new privately funded and privately owned institutions? Thank you. Um, um, Simon is hissing quite properly that I have to keep it short because the clock is running. Um, I, I have seen private universities being set up in Poland that are interesting. That is, um, so that's one route. 
but it requires um, uh, sometimes local oligarchs. Can you find an honest oligarch who wants to fund private sector education in Ukraine? That's a stretch, right? The difficulty, I think, is setting up free institutions uh, where you don't have a fully independent judiciary, you don't have free media, where you don't have the, the institutional structure and tradition of independence. It gets back to this point about communist culture. Ukraine is trying to dig itself out of um, a communist political culture which is extremely adverse to these, um, to these ideals. <clears throat> but I, but I, I'd conclude just with, with one thought that um, the thing to always remember is that if you can create a free institution like a university, Universities are some of the oldest free institutions in the world. Some of universities are now, you know, a thousand years old. And it's always worth remembering that. Bad regimes come and go, but universities have a weird way of enduring. I mean, you know, I have a colleague at Oxford who says, you know, you should, she said to encourage me, you know, remember they, they, the Cavaliers sacked Oxford the Roundheads sacked Oxford, and we're still here. Um, I know we have trouble with Oxford, but LSE will still be here, okay? I, I think we need to remember our historic vocation and our historic mission, and I just hope in places like Ukraine, with enough stubbornness, and it may take a couple of generations, people like you will implant these things, and then they'll become impossible to uproot. Great, thank you. Uh, now, Michael's book is for sale outside, and if you want to get it or you've got it already, please do come back here. Michael, stay on the stage, and we'll sign for you. But um, taking your words, uh, I think that's where we should end. <laughs> We've covered a tremendous lot of ground at a very, very high level of altitude. We've talked about the biggest possible words there are, counter-majoritarianism, authoritarian populism, and democratic self-subversion. Well, I hope this discussion has vindicated the difficult and unpopular thought that this really is the only level at which a full encounter with the difficulty of our times is adequate. Thank you very much, Michael. <laughs>